At Real Vision, we're closing the doors. But not how you might think. You see, this autumn we're launching the new Real Vision, a platform built around the universal truth that knowledge times tools times network equals success, your success. It's the biggest transformation in our history and brings together everything you need in your journey from information to knowledge to wisdom, all in one place. That's incredible AI, charting tools, networking, economic data, watch lists, notes, and a whole ton more. We start rolling out to our current members at the end of August, and from August the 15th, we're closing the doors to any new members while we focus on that. But you do have one final chance to get in that door. Until August the 15th, you can level up for a whole quarter of Real Vision just for the price of $20.14. When you go to realvision.com forward slash last chance, you'll see why we chose that price in particular. It's something about Real Vision of old. You'll get to experience the new platform before the general public with no obligation to stay after that three months and a price that works out for like $6 a month. It's what you call a no-brainer. Anyway, I hope to see you on Real Vision. It's an incredible community and my God, this new platform is going to be extraordinary and will change as many lives as possible. That's realvision.com forward slash last chance. Is the tech rally showing cracks? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Peter Bookfar, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakly Financial Group and the editor of The Book Report. Hi, Peter. How are you? Hi, Maggie. Good to see you. Same here. We made it to Friday. It's been a little bit of a busy, turbulent week. We had inflation data out. Producer prices today a little less market-friendly, maybe than CPI. We could consumer confidence out, weekly jobless claims. When you put it all together, what did you make of this week and the market action we saw? Well, it, it really sort of um, puts a bookend around a lot of important news over the last couple of weeks between tech earnings, jobs data, the ISMs, and all the things that you mentioned this week. Uh, I think from here, as we look through the end of the month, it's uh, a bunch of retailers that we get to hear about the state of the consumer. I think when you look at the inflation stats this week, if you look at the inflation break-evens, particularly the five-year, they're basically a little changed on the week. And the numbers itself were, were pretty much in line with expectations. Now, we know with CPI, there, there, there are holes in it in terms of its measurement of rents and so on. Uh, I don't think it uh, really changes the needle for what the Fed will do in September, even though we're going to see another batch of inflation stats and also jobs data. Uh, I think the Fed is not going to do anything in September, uh, and we'll see what happens thereafter. But uh, I don't think there was really any surprises. But that said, I think the Treasury market action was really the biggest surprise, because as I mentioned, we saw no change in inflation expectations. The stats themselves were basically in line, and we've, we've seen horrible action in the long end of the Treasury yield curve. And that's the main takeaway uh, that I think we should all be taking note of as we finish up the week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and again, that's a part of the market where you, you're not, that's not always where you're expecting to see the volatility. And there've been some really big moves. We've been talking about it all week on the daily briefing with people feeling really concerned or really optimistic. It's been a very divided camp. We have some highlights just to show 
at least what we've been hearing throughout the week. Let's look at them and then we'll talk on the other side. And I think that 10-year yields are going to be lower than 3% in three to six months, for sure. Today was the peak in yields. Shocked I'm not rolling market. out if there's a shock and and we have a, you know, like a 10% down day in the market mm. that people won't run to treasuries and that they'll get a pop. But I think their ultimate destination is uh, TLT under 90, 88, 86, and the 10-year 4.95%. On the long end, I still think it is delusional. I think we can go to 5% very easily. I actually think we will get there and we'll get there in a couple of days. I don't know when that's going to hit, uh, but when it hits, it's going to be like the guild market. Everyone thinks that the bond market is going to be this ballast to their portfolio. And, I, and I've been arguing that it's going to be the anchor that drags it down. I think the primary risk that people need to be positioning for is the risk that the Fed declares victory too soon. So to me, the setup is right for oil to come alive here. And this is just going to be a regeneration of the grade rotation, which really traded all the way back to where it started. It was very interesting for us to sort of watch that dynamic. And Jared's can get a lot of beef for his very bullish call. Um, that was Friday. And I will say Jared tends to be short term. And some people's time frames in that uh, little clip that we just showed are a little bit different. Some people are talking like Vincent talking longer term. But still, what do you think's going on with treasuries, Peter? Why are we seeing yields start to move up? The 10 years at 4.15%. What's happening? So I'm going to talk big picture here, and then I'll I'll get more micro. Uh, and and something that I that I've been arguing for a while is that post getting out of negative interest rate policy, where we had at the peak 18 trillion dollars worth of them, the analysis on where long term rates would go was not just looking at U.S. growth and inflation stats. It was the beginning of an unwind of the greatest financial bubble in the history of bubbles, that being sovereign debt. And obviously, inflation was the trigger to begin that unwind. So we had to, as part of this trying this, this, this forecasting game that we play, was look at how it was going in terms of the, that monetary tightening, and not just in terms of raising short-term interest rates, but how these central banks would, do, would maneuver through quantitative tightening and shrinking their balance sheets and outright selling um, long-end bonds like the, uh, the, the Bank of England is doing. And how that intertwines with in the U.S. with how we were going to digest massive amounts of supply uh, because of our rising debts and deficits, where for 40-plus years it never mattered, but maybe now it matters. Mm. And... The Bank of Japan, which essentially was the author of zero interest rates, uh, was the author of the modern day version of QE. Well, they obviously tweaked yield curve control last year, but the possibility that now they're doing it in a broader fashion where they've now essentially raised yield curve control to 100 basis points. These are, these are major structural shifts in terms of the flow of treasuries and is part of this gigantic unwind. Now, taking it within this week, uh, and, and also I have to mention, Japan is the largest owner of U.S. Treasuries. Mm -hmm. And if there is some repatriation that goes on because JGBs are more attractive, 
or the, just the cost of hedging out dollar exposure is just not worth it anymore. Uh, foreigners have been shrinking the piece of the of their holdings of U.S. Treasuries. So foreign holdings of U.S. Treasuries, that percentage has been shrinking for years. Banks are already loaded up on duration, and we know that that basically ended a few of them in March. Uh, so the, all these buyers and, and the Fed is essentially selling are going away. Now, the flip side, we have retail and we have institutional buying of treasuries because, wow, we have yields for the first time in 15 years, but they're tending to uh, gravitate towards the shorter end of the curve. So the longer end of the yield curve in the U.S. doesn't have that same natural buyer. And I think this BOJ news was a game changer. Uh, and I think that that was sort of the, 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 the switch being flicked in this recent upturn in, in long-term U.S. Treasury yields. Now, this week we had a good, we had a great, actually, we had a great three-year note auction. We had a very good 10-year and we had a soft 30-year. And just within 20 minutes of that soft 30-year, whereas just before the 10-year yield got below uh, 4% on the inline CPI, rates just went straight up. And they continue, as I look today, uh, pretty much at the highs of the day at 415. So and we, that, that that happened. So let's unpack a little bit of this for, for people who don't watch, always watch the bond market as closely as you do. So when you when you're talking about there aren't natural buyers, that means that well, what we are the implications for the US? Buyers. Right. We have natural domestic buyers right now, but those buyers being retail and institutional, they're not they're going really for the 30 years. They're going to be on the short end of the yield curve. So, so that means that in order to attract buyers, that interest that yields on the 30-year has to go higher. Yeah, and starting at even the 10, it's it's you can have outright and all you know we we have to also and and getting stepping back again, the 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 day that the U.S. and the EU froze Russian central bank assets, that was also a game changer for sovereign bonds, because who's going to want to be too heavily weighted if you're a central bank in U.S. Treasuries, if uh, that can get confiscated at any moment in time. Mm-hmm. So there, there are these, these major structural influences that are leading to this rise in longer-term interest rates. I mean, you take a step back, Treasuries act like crap this week. Mm-hmm. You had a benign CPI, you have worries about economic growth, you had an uptick in jobless claims, and I beg people to read the transcript of what ZipRecruiter said this week in the earnings report for the third quarter in a row, talking about slowing pace of hiring. They are the number one online recruiting company, so you cannot discount what they say. You would every reason to see yields lower, and they're not. They're much higher. This is terrible action that I think people should take note of. Okay, so the the imp, is it i think we've been so fixated on the fed given the dynamics that you just described even if the fed were to do nothing it sounds like you're saying that there are these forces which are going to be pushing yields up on treasuries anyway the us the europeans the japanese we are all in this bond boat together in addition to others look what happened to the european bond market this week look at look at the 5 year 5 year euro inflation swap this year i'm sorry this week it, ha- it is now just below the highest level in 13 years. And it's basically, the, and it was Mario Draghi's favorite measure of inflation expectations for Europe. And we've had, we, we had a terrible day today in the European bond market. 
So it's not just the U.S. It's, it's, it's all of these central banks that went on this easing binge that now we're seeing the backside of it. So I, I tell people again, I've told them many times over the past year, if you're going to tell me what your 10-year yield forecast is, do not just base it on your expectations for U.S. growth and inflation. Because if that was the case, okay, yeah, I, I can see the 10-year yield going to three, three and a half maybe. But it is a much more complicated situation right now with sovereign bonds. And they're going higher for not good reason. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This is so important. I hope everyone's paying really close attention to this because everything you see is the conversation based around inflation and growth and if the Fed will pivot. And th these are, I don't want to put them in the geopolitical camp. That's not exactly right, Peter, but it's the, it's the, the knock-on effect of this massive the mechanisms coming out of the great financial crisis trying to unwind itself. And then for maybe the geopolitical reasons you mentioned uh, with the freezing SWIFT and, and the response to Russia and the Japanese now on their own journey with their... You've got all of this coming together, creating a problem and and not not enough international demand or not enough demand around for these bonds, which so two questions. One, one is why are investors, domestic investors, because so, I'm assuming that argument is sort of the same, the higher the yields go, you know, for savers, that could be potentially interesting. Why don't do they not want to go out past the three year? What's holding them back? Someone asked this question internally earlier. Why yeah. don't investors want their 10-year maybe, but especially 30-year bonds? Because short-term rates are just so attractive here. And yes, you, you do lose out on the possibility of the Fed starts slashing rates over the next couple of years and you, and you, you take on this major reinvestment risk. Uh, but I, I think that there's just this nervousness about overall um, duration for a variety of the reasons that I just gave. I mean, I, I, I mentioned for people to look at the ZipRecruiter CEO comments, watch what the Japanese 40-year yield does. That has been busting out to the upside as well. And that is the least tethered part of the Japanese yield curve to both yield curve control and negative interest rates. And that has gone higher. So I think that... Um, you know, if you're if you're retail, you're buying T-bills because you're sort of replacing your savings account. You're saying I'm getting 0 0.01 in my savings account. I'll just buy a three, six or or one year T-bill, mm -hmm. sort of the same thing. So it's easy for them to make that short term maturity decision on what they buy. The institutions are saying, hey, you know, 4% is, is certainly more attractive than what it's been for the last 15 years. But I got to digest and, and think about all these worries. If you look at TLT, the ETF, that's 20 plus years of, of treasury maturity. From its peak of a couple of years ago, it is down 40%, not Ooh. including um, coupons that you get back. That's the price. This, the price is down 40%. This is, not, this is not a meme stock that got cut in half. This is, these are long-term treasuries. So duration has burned people's fingers in the socket. 
Now, other people can say, well, that that's what makes them so attractive right now. How can you not buy the long end of the curve? Inflation's falling. We're going to go into recession. The Fed's going to cut rates. Everything's going to be, you know, a problem, and you got to buy ten-year treasuries. I get it. I get that argument, but I just don't think there's enough appreciation for all these other things that we said. And what happens if the Fed does start cutting, and the, the curve steepens? But it steepens not only because short-term rates fall, but long-term rates go up because mm-hmm. the, the long end of the yield curve doesn't believe that this inflation fight is over. You know, there's one thing to have an inflation spike, have inflation come back down again. The other thing is to actually keep inflation down because the Fed's job is not done if we start to see a two-handle on inflation by the end of the year. It's keeping it at a two-handle for a sustainable period of time. And I think that we're far away from having that happen on a sustainable basis. Maybe we have it, you know, a few months here and there as rental growth um, starts to really fall within CPI as we get into the latter part of this year and into next year, because rents, when they fall, are not going to stay down. Because as long as mortgage rates are at seven and a half percent, a lot of the multifamily supply that's coming our way, and I'm, I'm going off a little bit on a tangent No, here, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. The family supply is going to be absorbed rather quickly. And I can tell you this, there is almost zero multifamily construction that is the beginning today, because none of the numbers work anymore with interest rates where they are and rent growth slowing to the extent that it is. Right. And we, of course, have people who can't move because they're more, they're locked in, thankfully, but they're locked in mortgages with low interest rates. So the mobility and the turnover for existing is non-existent. So given this, these, these other factors that are putting upward, have the potential to put upward pressure on yields, what did you, what's your forecast? I mean, where do you see this headed? Is it the kind of thing where, you know, if you get a few more of these auctions that don't go well, does this begin to feed on itself? Is there a level where it feels like that's the correct level coming out of this extraordinary? Because you could argue historically, treasury yields were ridiculously low. Um, do they go back to some sort of historical norm? What does this look like, do you think? Well, I, you know, I stated all the reasons why I think yields go up on the long end, but because a lot of these reasons are so unprecedented, like global QT is pretty unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, these U.S. debts and deficits as a percent of GDP is pretty unprecedented that it's, I'm just throwing a dart and trying to figure out where we go on the upside. I'm just more worried about the trajectory to the upside. Now, in the short term, four and a quarter, 423, 425 is going to be the level that everyone's watching because that was the peak, uh, you know, a few months ago. So technically speaking, that's the level that everyone's watching. But I, I think we're going above that. And when, once we do, we're going to go to four and a half rather quickly. Uh, what happens above that? It, it's this is all for not good reason. And uh, you just have to wonder, you know, at what point does the Fed start to get concerned about that? And, and, and uh, you know, because there, 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 there are problems here with, with, with what's going on because of the amount of holdings that foreigners have still of U.S. treasuries. I talked about them slowing the pace of their mm. ownership. But what happens if they're like, why do I own long-term U.S. treasuries here with, with the selling that's going on? And uh, that can exaggerate further selling. And that could then weaken the dollar you know, there, there is some, um, these are things that I'm watching for. And uh, I don't think a rise in long end yields 
was on many people's um, uh, playbooks and radar screens over the past month because they have all been focused on, yeah, inflation's moderating, Fed's almost done, and everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And it's not that easy when you are unwinding. And I'll say again, and I'm sorry if I'm sounding hyperbolic, the largest financial bubble in the history of bubbles. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, there have been plenty of you who have come on our platform and and warned about this. But when it seems so far off and disconnected, you know, it can sound like um, just perma bears, you know, but these are real concerns when when this is a huge financial experiment and there's not a lot of rule books in terms of getting out. So what does this mean? So what is let's kind of walk through what this means for the rest of the investing universe. That sort of stubbornly higher, perhaps uh, a quick jump in yields, because there is this sort of confidence issue. And we've had Vincent last week was talking about, do you see an event like the gilt market where suddenly this thing shoots higher uh, in a a really unsustainable way? Let's hope that doesn't happen. But what are the implications for this higher, unexpectedly higher interest rate environment for corporates? I mean, I know you sit and listen to all of the earnings calls. We had discussed in the past a reset. I mean, if you're, you know, even if you were able to get through this period because you're you know, you were able to lock in rates. Eventually, people have to take out more loans. Eventually, they have to capitalize their businesses. What does that sort of higher interest rate environment mean for the economy? Well, th- that that's my 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 biggest worry about the economy when we look out over a period of time. When people have these, these debates about recession, no recession, hard landing, soft landing, whatever landing, it's they all think that 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 a recession is like some sort of an event because they're so used to COVID, a major event, and and oh wait, where you just had this this collapse out of a major event, and, and I've said this before with you that I'm more worried about a death by a thousand cuts type situation, as debt reprices higher because we've had this extraordinarily unusual circumstance where you've had 15 years of no interest rates. And then you go straight up over an 18-month time frame. Mm. So all the debt that's out there, essentially, is priced at a dramatically lower level than where we sit today. And But it takes time to, for this sort of this dragnet to ca- capture people. You know, if, you, if you're a business that doesn't have debt coming due until November, well, you've been fine over the past 18 months, but you, the train's still coming your way and you got to deal with it in November. If your loan doesn't come due until March 2024, it's still out there. And unless rates dramatically collapse from now until March, you're facing a major refinancing issue. And you're just going to have to come up with a lot more equity. And, and I can tell you this, every and, and, and I'm, I'm not saying anything that we don't already know, every single person in the commercial real estate business that doesn't have long-term fixed rate debt is going to sleep every night thinking, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to deal with this? The only answer is, if they want to keep that property, is a lot more equity and hope they can get some generosity from the bank that doesn't want to take back that property. On the household level, because so many people have these longer-term mortgages, they're certainly more insulated, but there's still plenty of adjustable rate mortgages that are resetting every day. You still have people that would want, that a first-time buyer that wants to buy a new home Mm-hmm. That can't afford a seven and a half percent mortgage. 
you have credit card interest rates that are 22 percent it was you got yeah to buy a car cars you buy a car that, that down the, the rates basically you know. doubled right so it's it's not just affecting existing debt holders but it's affecting future activity because there's maybe one less person that's going to say let me drive this car drive this car for an extra year because it's paid off and I don't want to have to pay a, and, and and I don't want to get a new car and pay nine percent for a used car and so it's inhibiting new activity from here that's not getting necessarily captured in in you know in the data with 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 regards to people that have existing debt yeah I mean you're speaking to the preaching to the converted Warren Buffett would be very proud of me. We are driving around with a car that has a CD player in it. That's how old it is. Forget about a computer. It's actually got a real CD player in it. I mean, the thing is oh, a wait, have electric windows. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have to crank it down, but like we're, we're, we're close, uh, much to the horror of my children. Uh, so what does this mean for equities? We started the show by saying it's our tech, tech stocks showing crack. I mean, someone joked yesterday that all we've talked about for the last year is basically Nvidia. We have the Nasdaq down again today. It's been leading the way down on down days. What does this mean for for tech and broadly for equity markets if we if we have this potential for much higher rates than people had anticipated? Okay, so with tech and the and the difficult 2022, tech was looking for any reason to rally in 2023. Buyers on the dip. These are the greatest companies in the world. They're going to recover. Blah blah blah. And AI just happened to be that spark as we know. Now, tech was rallying before this AI craze occurred, so there was some rebound uh, after certainly the the notable correction last year, but AI, as we know, was the spark that accelerated the move higher. But there's a couple things of importance here, is that when we looked at first quarter earnings for big cap tech, they were very pedestrian in terms of their growth rates. Apple saw basically no revenue growth, Microsoft's revenue growth was up 7% in Q1. Meta, Google, Amazon, very modest revenue growth. And then AI just sort of whitewashed everyone's minds of, of that reality and thought that there, we were seeing this new tomorrow in generative AI. And what has happened over the past three weeks was that earnings season again sort of wiped away the the delusions of AI grandeur and brought people back to reality that Apple still does not have any revenue growth. And why did we just jam the stock up to 33 times earnings? Microsoft, as great a company as it is, and sort of at the epicenter, outside of NVIDIA, of the AI craze, and Microsoft's numbers were good, but very pedestrian. I'll use that word again. And we just jammed up Microsoft to, elevated levels into a record high. Why'd we do that? Because of the AI craze, but AI doesn't print you money. You have, you have to prove to us how AI prints you money. How do you generate revenue from integrating AI into that business? Now, NVIDIA, certainly they're doing it because they're powering it. Microsoft will through uh, their, 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 their co-pilot software, but it still remains to be seen how this drives the revenue and earnings growth that everyone got so excited. I mean, that's the beauty of earnings season. It's always a great reality check because in between earnings seasons, people can wish and dream what they want, but it's it's the day of that corporate report when you hear directly from the horse's mouth about how business is. And I think that was the reality check that 
people said, oh, wow, I just, I, I just expanded PE multiples. Earnings are not rising. And why did I just expand these PE multiples? Because of, of AI? Um, let, me, let me rethink that thesis. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And then you look at semis. You know, outside of NVIDIA, semi earnings were pretty mediocre. And uh, I think the most notable comment from a semiconductor company, by the way, the SMH is trading below 50 day moving average, was from Microchip. Because outside of AI, the last remaining strength in end chip demand was from the auto sector. PCs no. were slow, smartphones were slow, data center was slow. It was auto demand for chips that was the strongest part of that sector because inventories were normalizing, supply chains were calming, and dealers were trying to get more cars on their lots. Well, Microchip in last week's earnings report said now auto is showing signs of slowing. And let's so, let's remember there's a potential strike looming with auto companies as well. Yes, so if, it, if, it, if the sure. uh, assembly lines aren't moving, then they're not going to have any cars to put chips in. Right, so. exactly. So I think you had this, this bear market rally uh, on the, not just AI, but no one wants to miss a Fed is done rally, right? Mm. I mean, the, the, the market bottom, the dollar peaked in October, just as the Fed was slowing down the pace of their 75 basis point rate increases, because that was the first sort of sniff to, yeah, we're, there's light at the end of the Fed rate hiking cycle. And we've been rallying since. But now people yeah. are realizing, well, the Fed, even if they're almost done, is going to be rather stubborn in keeping short rates high. And now we got a, all of a sudden a problem in the long run. Yeah. And, and, and the Fed's not the only game in town, as you just laid out. By the way, uh, just a couple comments. Tommy Thornton is in the chat. Hi, Tom. Uh, Peter's awesome. When something doesn't happen, as one would expect after econ data and it goes the other way, there is something bigger happening. Watch USD uh, dollar yen as it's breaking higher, yen weaker. Uh, so there are signs out there that all is not well. Right. That, that, that is a great point because, and it's taken me by surprise, this yen weakness, because I thought what the Bank of Japan did was, was a game changer, but it does create further problems for the Bank of Japan because one of the things that was, was somewhat unclear on the day they made this announcement was they were not explicit with this 1% yield curve control target. They basically said, yeah, we'll, we'll play around in between 50 and 100 basis points. Meanwhile, two days later, tenure went to 60 and they're already in the market uh, buying, buying JGBs. But he's 100% right. And also, I'll use that with treasuries. Treasuries should have rallied this week, and they did not. Mm -hmm. And that tells you that maybe the, some of the, 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 the reasons why I mentioned before, there is, there is some problems here. And um, I, I, think, um, I think equity people are rallying on AI and Fed's almost done, I think, are rethinking this, particularly post-earnings, which are going to be, I think, the third quarter in a row of earnings declines. Mm. So we're, we're almost out of time. We're kind of out of time, but I want to squeeze one more in. Paul English asking, Peter, bottom line, how would you advise your mother to position her portfolio? Let's have the boomer forecast. I would ask, are, you know, when we're thinking about the 60-40, which came up in a, a interview that we had on the platform between Tony Greer and Kevin Muir, which I encourage everyone to watch, um, could we be looking at a situation where bonds and stocks are selling off? Well, again, I, I think correlations are traditional correlations. Once again, you know, 
at risk? It, it's, it's important how, on, on how one calibrates the 40% side. Uh, to, to, we, we here have tried to really focus on shorter duration bonds to more insulate us from the rise in long-term interest rates. I think that's what's really important is you can be, I mean, fixed income yields, we were, we were in the desert without water for 15 years. And now it. there's actually drinking water in terms of interest rates. So we should be taking advantage of it. But I just think that you can do that within one, two, maybe three years tops in terms of your duration. In terms of equities, we've been bullish, and I've been bullish on this program for a while, on energy stocks, and I remain bullish on energy stocks. And to, um, and to the possibility that the Fed is really maybe this time almost on raising interest rates and, and, and the dollar continues to, to act like it's topping out, notwithstanding its behavior, as Tommy brought up with the yen, uh, I, I just feel like gold and silver are just licking their lips ready to find a reason to move much higher. Uh, and we've, I, I'd be avoiding the, the big cap growth stocks, as I talked about reasons why. And I think that there are plenty of cheap stocks out there, but you got to really extend your time horizon here uh, because there, there's choppy waters that we're coming upon again as we finish the summer up. Time horizon allows you to uh, weather that better than, than not. Um, and, and I also like um, markets in Asia as well. Uh, but it's tricky out there. This is not easy. It's, uh, it, it's tough out there. Yeah. And Peter, this was an incredibly important conversation on a week when we did see a lot of activity in bonds. And I feel like when people flick on the news or open the paper real quick, it, you know, it, it, the headlines are always about stocks. But this is really a time to be plugged in and paying attention what's got, with treasuries and what's happening with yields and interest rates. So we appreciate you shining a light on that. Thanks, Maggie. Always fun talking. Yeah, same here. Great to have you. Uh, before we go, just a reminder, uh, we've launched uh, season two of the Real Vision Collective. What is that, you asked? The Real Vision Collective is on a mission to bring all of your favorite NFT communities together while giving you the knowledge you need to navigate Web3. If you want to help build a super community of NFTs, head over to realvision.com slash collective to learn more and mint your own season two NFT. It comes with a bunch of perks related to our platform as well. So check it out. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate you joining us on this Friday. Enjoy your summer weekend. We'll see you next week. Take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 